sponsor. Our Gravel Series continues. We have some great sponsors sending us to some of the biggest gravel races this year. Uh, this week, we're talking about Pactimo and their new kit that you are riding. Tell me about this cool kit you're at the, you're riding at the gravel races. Hey Fred, it's new kit day here at Velo News, or at least it was last week. I was super stoked to get this Pactimo stuff in. It looks awesome, and I, my highlight for me is the Summit Stratos 12-hour bib shorts that are part of our kit, and these bibs are designed for really long rides. I've got Dirty Kansas 200 ahead of me in the start of June, that's 200 mile gravel race, and I'm looking forward to wearing these bibs because they definitely have engineered in a lot of features that help make them comfortable for the long haul. So you did 100 miles on them at the Land Run 100 in Oklahoma. What's your, what's your initial take on the bibs? Yeah, they just have this really nice uh, fabric that's very stretchy and comfortable. They've reduced the number of seams around the lower back and butt. It's much more breathable, and there's a little bit of reflective uh, taping here and there on the side seams for uh, for visibility. Oh, well, I'll be keeping my eyes on you when we're uh, riding. Well, thanks to Pactimo for sponsoring us on our gravel series this year. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison and Andy Hood. Guys, we're back at that time of year when, you know, there's a big bike race on. I'm just sitting on my couch. The dog is staring at me, wondering why I'm like on the edge of my seat, drinking coffee and just shaking because of the action going on. Uh, guys, this past weekend was Milano San Remo. We're going to get into the takes, the analysis, breaking down Julian Alaphilippe's big win. Uh, but again, as I like to refresh for the listeners, Spencer, how do you how do you take in these races? Like, what's your what's your race morning ritual? Firing up the live stream, getting your breakfast. Like, like set the scene. What's it like when you're watching an event? Well, I. I'm psyched because it used to be I'd watch these on my laptop, but now we've got a nice big TV in the living room, set it up with the Roku. We got the Flow Bikes app on the Roku, which they've got the uh, RCS races, including Milan San Remo. And yeah, we get the coffee going and have a nice, nice little breakfast. I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty relaxed. It's nice. Yeah, but like are the doggies looking at you being like, ah, take us on a walk, TV man. Uh, once we get them out for a little break... They're good for a few hours, so fortunately they aren't too antsy in the morning. Now, Hoodie, these races are going on at a uh, more realistic time period for you. You're on Central European time, so what, this is like mid-afternoon? I mean, are you getting dirty looks from the wife being like, come on, let's go get some tapas? Like, how do you manage your race viewing on these Saturdays? Yeah, these, you're right. It comes in around uh, 4 o'clock European time. That's post-tapas post-tapas pre-siesta so this actually is a great uh, segue into the siesta and uh you know the racing was so exciting on saturday it definitely kept me up all the way until the end and then boom right into the siesta mode so it's perfect timing well you have the siesta before the finale of san Remo. i think there's there's like 150 kilometers of siesta or maybe probably 200 kilometers of siesta really yeah i saw a lot of stuff on twitter that it was like you know milan san Remo starts in 100 kilometers and you know the race had already been on for several hours hoodie i don't know if i could actually take a siesta after watching something like milan san Remo because i was so jazzed up and amped up after watching 
watching that thrilling finale, I, I really wanted to go ride my own bicycle. I could, I could not until later in the day. But uh, we were gifted another exciting Milan San Remo in which a small group of favorites came to the line. No bunch sprint this year. Giuliano Philippe was the fastest man. Um, it was one of those situations where everyone had kind of in the back of their mind that Giuliano Philippe was the favorite. And sometimes when that happens, um, the favorite doesn't win because everyone's looking at him. And Philippe still managed to win. So, Hoodie, take me through your viewing experience. The, break down these last 20 or so K, uh, both with the action and, like, how you, the viewer, were, were reacting to what you saw on your TV. It was it was a superb show by Quick Step. Again, they, they played their cards just perfectly. What really the takeaway for me was just how Philippe just had the panache to deliver that win. Because as you said, Fred, the favorite often falls short, has his, uh, the wheels marked, and often can get pipped there in, in a situation. And he just blew the wheel. He blew his wheels off everybody. That's what kind of really stood out for me was just how strong and fast Philippe was. Because you had that elite group coming in. And you were looking around, there was like, mm, there's a few fast guys in that group. It's going to be tricky for Alaphilippe. And he just made that big, long spread, came off uh, Morovic's uh, wheel. And just, man, he just blew away a couple of former world champions in there and the reigning world champion. And so, I mean, chapeau to Alaphilippe, man, impressive. And you really have to give a lot of credit to that Dasuna Quickstep team for setting him up so nicely. They came into the bottom of Poggio. It's just remarkable when you can see a team line out three or so riders to lead out their man on that crucial final climb. And the effort that Istaj Jdenek Stibar put in at the bottom of that climb, just exceptional. He was drilling it on the front. I I just couldn't believe how well organized they were coming into that. And and also I was a little surprised, frankly, that nobody tried a long bomb attempt over the Cipressa or some of the earlier Capo climbs. It, uh, to me, felt like a pretty controlled edition of Milan San Remo, which personally... I found maybe not as exciting as what we've seen in some years past where you get a guy like Gilbert going for a long shot over the Cipressa. It uh, seemed maybe like the whole peloton was was keeping their eye on the Quick Quickstep and being cautious not to burn those matches too soon. Well, I don't think anyone was going on the Cipressa because the Cipressa was lit on fire by a bunch of zany fans with their roadside uh, orange flares. It's always, why is it always the Cipressa? It always happens on that climb, doesn't it? Well, did you I've see, seen photos in years past too. There's the overhead shot where literally a tree had been transformed into a raging inferno. I did see that. Uh, the Smokey the Bear sponsored section of the course. Yeah. Uh, only you can prevent forest fires, everyone. So... What what stands out to me about this year's Milan San Remo is just the pedigree, the strength of that front group. You know, as they were rumbling into the line, you looked around and you're like, okay, Peter Sagan is here, three-time world champion. Michael Kwiatkowski is here, world champion. Matteo Trenton, European road champion. Philippe, hottest guy in cycling. Uh, Valverde. Valverde. Current road champion. Looking pretty sharp, too. Tom Dumoulin, Giro champ. It was this grab bag of talent. Uh, Mohoric, just all around, you know, strong man. And so there was a moment where this group was coming to the line where I did think to myself, ah, uh, Philippe, I don't know, he might be a little too spindly skinny of an uphill climber to hold off a Sagan or a Matteo Trenton or somebody like that. But not only did he do, he, he let out the sprint and he held everyone off, which leads me to my first question for you all, which is, did anybody screw this up? 
I definitely think that Peter Sagan screwed this up, Fred. And and I was a little puzzled by how far Alaphilippe was at, up in the front and that sprint. But perhaps it's just that just tells you how good his form was. Was he's that confident? But I think Sagan made a big mistake because he was right there on Alaphilippe's wheel coming into the sprint, and he purposefully swung wide, giving up Alaphilippe's wheel. And that was not the right move because the sprint got ahead of him on the side that he had swung away from. And he wasn't exactly watching what was happening there. I think he was maybe a little distracted by Valverde. I couldn't quite tell from the footage, but but still, in my book, it would have been smart to stay right on Alaphilippe's wheel and bet your, bet your money on that rider since he's on such good form. My only suspicion is that having seen Alaphilippe attack on the Poggio, having seen him close down the gap to Matteo Trentin in the final kilometer or so there, perhaps Sagan assumed that Alaphilippe had spent all his matches and wouldn't be the right wheel to follow in that sprint. Hoodie, did anybody screw it up? I kind of agree with Spencer. I thought I was kind of puzzled by what Sagan was doing. It seemed like that, you know, I don't think Sagan was quite as sharp as he expected to be. He was kind of sick coming out of a training camp and wasn't looking great in Torino, but I thought that he kind of misread that sprint a little bit. Maybe someone could have perhaps tried to go a little bit earlier. Uh, you saw the quote from Oliver Nason, who was second, uh, coming off the wheel. He said he couldn't even close, get past Philippe's rear wheel. He said he was helpless, to only could just watch Philippe win that race. So if, you, if, you, if, if someone's that strong and that fast, you know, what can you do? Maybe go early to try to upset that sprint, but man, everyone's just already on, on the rivet at that point, aren't they? Yeah, I'm with you guys. In the first moments after the race, I was thinking, wow, Peter Sagan, you're such a faster sprinter than this guy. How the heck did you, how, how the heck did you mess that one up? But kind of in looking back at the replay and then seeing how it was Alaphilippe whose attack started the whole thing, like you said, Spencer, it was him who chased down Matteo Trenton to keep the group together. And then he leads out the sprint and wins it. Sometimes this, the guy with the biggest sledgehammer is going to knock down the wall, and I think that might have been the case in this race. You know, at the end of six hours and 40 minutes of bike racing, it just, it just comes down to whoever wants it more and whoever feels that confidence, and that confidence certainly is flowing through Julian Alaphilippe with the win streak that he's on. Yeah, so we need to talk about this with Julian Alaphilippe, which is he is on this, uh, I would say, semi-historic win streak in that we've seen him win seven races through 22 days of racing. He won time trials, uphill sprints, bunch sprints, hilly races, uh, you know, semi-classics in Strada Bianca, and now a monument. And I guess a question I have for you two is, how do we put this in context? Are there any other win streaks in recent years that uh, are somewhat similar to what we're seeing right now? Well, guys, we were looking through pro cycling stats recently, and I think there's a couple of fairly good candidates to make a comparison here. One of the first ones that we came upon was actually Julian Alaphilippe's current teammate on the Sunit Quickstep, and that's Philippe Gilbert. And we're going back to the 2011 season when he was just unbelievable. He swept all three of the Ardennes Classics. Hoodie, what do you remember about that season when Gilbert was just on a tear? Because he also won a stage at Torino Adriatico, as well as the Strada Bianca race and a stage at Volta Ao Algarve, which is uh, kind of similar to the to the slate of wins that Alaphilippe has collected to this point. You get that aura of invincibility. You just There's that confidence that riders get, like Spencer was just saying. 
that you go to the start line, you're just convinced that you're going to win and you have that confidence, you have those legs. We've seen a few other times, you know, Valverde is another rider who's kind of gone in these winning streaks. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really happen that often, even with uh, you looking back at the history of guys like, uh, you know, Jalabert or, or some of these riders, even Merckx, you know, they get in these winning streaks. Well, Merckx was an exception. He won almost all the time. But typically this will happen Someone will just kind of get on that little purple patch, the English like to call it. You just get that get that mojo going, and you just have all those factors: strong team, momentum, confidence, the fitness of your life, and it just comes together. Who knows how long it's going to last? But he's unstoppable right now. Yeah, some win streaks that came to mind were uh, 2008 with Fabian Cancellara when he won Milan San Remo. Um, I believe he won a stage at Tirreno. Uh, he won the, the overall. overall. Won the overall yeah, at Tirreno as, as well as a stage, and then had a great classic season. Um, yeah, it's, it is a strange thing to quantify, and you're not guaranteed to see a streak like this every season. You know, we saw one two years ago with Alejandro Valverde. Didn't really see a rider have that that crazy of a streak last year. I think the interesting thing is that for all of his wins, we we haven't really seen Peter Sagan be this streaky. I mean, there was the Flanders win, there was the Roubaix win, there have been lots of individual wins, but rattling off seven wins in 22 days of racing, I mean, that's a third of all of the races he's entered, if Alaphilippe has entered, has ended up in a victory. And to me, that's really it. It's really important because these win streaks sometimes end up being the thing that helps uh, transform a rider from a really good rider to a historically good rider. It's something that transcends even a monument win. You know, there's a lot of riders out there who have won monuments. Christoph has won monuments. Dagan Kolb has won monuments. But having a win streak to go along with it ends up making a rider um, something of a historical figure. And I think that's a question I have for you guys, which is, I mean, is that what we're seeing with Julian Alaphilippe right now? Is, is he now stepping into a different realm of, of riders historically? Yeah, you're really seeing Ella Philippe hit, hit his uh, kind of sweet spot right now in his career. He he was part of that uh, re- great recruiting that Quickstep did in the early part of this decade, around uh, 2011, 12, 13. They just built these amazing uh, U23 teams under the old Quickstep uh, U23 rosters. We've just seen really a whole generation of riders come through those programs. And he's been bubbling up. He's already had a, a, a good run of big wins. I mean, last year win King of the Mountain. But this year he's coming into the season just absolutely on a tear. What's missing for him really? You know, what is missing? Maybe Liege. He can win Liege. He can win a race. Uh, Lombardia. You know, what he really wants to win is the Worlds. I mean, this year the Yorkshire Worlds course is perfect for Philippe. So I think we're going to just see it. I think it's going to be the year of Philippe. I think the guy is just going to keep winning all season long. And it's a contract year. Imagine the French teams are going to go crazy to try to sign Mr. Julien Alaphilippe. Contract year makes a big difference. And you make a good point there, Hoodie, going back to last season in that Alaphilippe's streak, it really didn't start in the beginning of 2019. It's It started like back in July when he won two tour stages in the mountains classification. He won Classico San Sebastian. He won the overall at the Tour of Britain. He, he's just been flying since pretty much the middle of last season. So I, I agree. This is this is looking great for him. And I think it's cool, too, because he's he's got a lot of charisma. He's he's maybe not quite as wild and crazy as Peter Sagan, but he does have some of the same elements of like showmanship and he'll do wheelies and fool around on his bike and just have a good time. And that's what the fans like to see, especially when this is the rider who's also winning the big races. Hoodie, how does... Alaphilippe's success 
and um, just you know him coming into his own right now change the trajectory of Quickstep. I mean, this is the team of the heavy cobblestones, of the Northern Classics, of Belgium, rain, mud. And now they have this explosive climber who can win one-week stage races, hilly monuments, um, and, you know, tour stages. How does it change the focus for the team? Uh, I don't really think it's going to change things too much because it's a compliment, really, to the, to the Pave Cobbles team. They still have a very strong team for the uh, Ardennes with Bob Jungles and uh, some other riders on that roster. And then it just kind of folds right into their into their Grand Tour and stage race teams because, you know, they really don't have a GC captain. They have Enrique Moss, a few other guys are coming up. But they're a stage hunting team in the Grand Tour season. They're, they can win the one weeks. I mean, he, uh, he's going to be racing at the Basque Country uh, earlier uh, in April before heading to the Ardennes. So Alaphilippe, I mean, he just fits into this kind of larger puzzle that Quickstep's building. I think they've decided, you know, we're not going to have, we're not going to be a GC Grand Tour team. So we're going to be a sprinter team. We're going to be a stage hunting team and a classics team. And man, they're firing on all cylinders right now. Well, I think this is not the last we've seen of Mr. Julian Alaphilippe. You got to uh, imagine he's going to the Tour de France. He's obviously gunning up for the Ardennes season. I, I think you know we're a few weeks away from the Ardennes season, but that's going to be a really interesting showdown between Alaphilippe, Valverde, uh, some of these other teams. And the other thing I think about with regard to the to the upcoming Ardennes races is just that you, you just can't ride a peak this long. Eventually, Alaphilippe's gonna he's gonna slow down a little. He's going to lose that winning edge. That's just a pure fact of physiology. So you wonder how much longer he can carry this form. And once we get into late April, there could be some other contenders that are on the other direction of the upward curve where it's a guy like Peter Sagan, maybe, who's, he said he was sick before San Remo. I think his expectations were fairly low. And he said he's aiming for those, uh, those cobbled classics as well as Liège. You know, Spencer, we had another race go on this weekend on Sunday. That was the Women's World Tour race, Trofeo Alfredo Binda. And we had a pretty familiar winner in Mariana Voss winning the bunch sprint at the finish. You know, I really like Trofeo Alfredo Binda. It's a hilly race. It's a hard race. Last year, it was nasty, nasty weather. In fact, when I fired up the live stream uh, this year, I had a the wrong stream, and it was playing last year's race. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, another <laughs> biblically rainy and cold race. And then I saw uh, Kasha Nuiadoma attacking, and I was like, wow, she's doing the same thing as last year. And that, and that was my cue. I was like, I think this is the 2018 Deja vu. Uh, edition of the race. Because actually, the 2019 looked pretty sunny. Yeah, it was really nice. And, uh, and warm. Any takeaways from this race? I, it's really nice to see Voss back in the mix, especially considering how for years and years the spring races have been mostly dominated by Bulls Dolmans. And now, of course, we've seen Annemiek van Vluten coming into the mix. She's uh, just a total powerhouse. One Strada Bianca, she's on the Mitchelton Scott team. So that helps to break it up a little. But I think also if we get if we get Voss in the mix with her CCC Live team, you're going to have a great lineup for these big spring races for the Women's World Tour. I'm thinking Tour of Flanders. I'm thinking the Ardennes. It's going to be action-packed if Voss has got this type of winning form going into the really major spring classics that are just a couple weeks away. Yeah, I think one of the interesting dynamics with this race is is like you mentioned at the top, which is we're so used to Bulls Dolmets dominating and not just winning and, um, you know, placing high up there in the finals, but like 
putting multiple riders in the front group and, and dictating the tactics. And yeah. that was not the case in this race. They did not dictate the tactics. Uh, Chantal Black was up there. But, you know, they did to a certain degree dictate at Omloop Het Nusblad. But I think that's a real storyline heading into the Cobblestone Classics and then the Hilly Classics is not necessarily a what's wrong with Bulls Dolmans, but why does it seem like Bulls Dolmans is no longer the team completely dictating the tactics at these races? I, I have an interview scheduled with some of the riders and uh, the team director, Danny Sam, when I'm over there. So stay tuned. I think that's going to be something we're trying to get to the bottom of. But chapeau to Mariana Voss. You know, we are still in the sort of Mariana Voss 2.0 coming back from this burnout year, 2015, 2016. She had a tremendous amount of success last year. So, hey, she's winning women's world tour races and it's only uh, March. So good on it to her. Uh, Guys, as we mentioned, this is a wonderful, wonderful time of the year for bike racing fans because we're heading into the heavy classics. We have E3 Haralbeka coming up this Friday. We have Ghent Wevelgem Sunday, and that starts a, just the holiest of holy weeks. Cobblestone races, Flanders, Roubaix, uh, Prize, some other races, Dwarves going on. And, and I'm heading over there, and so is Hoodie. We're, uh, our flights are booked. We're going to be hanging out in Ghent for two and a half weeks. And for listeners of the podcast, that means extra podcasts. That's right, Spencer. I can see you're very, very excited. I'm so excited. You're going to be having myself, uh, Hoodie, probably some Gregor Brown, and lots of grabs and interviews with the riders talking about tech, talking about tactics, breaking down everything that's going on. Um, and, and that's going to be coming probably three days a week. The, the episodes, I, I imagine, will be a bit shorter than your traditional Vela News podcast episode, but um, it's going to be more regular. So, Hoodie, what are, the, what are our broad storylines in the cycling space as we head into classics? What are the classic storylines that you have your eyes on? Oh, uh, there's so many. The big one, of course, is going to be who is going to knock down Quick Step. They've been on a roll already this year winning you know so many they've swept the belgian opening weekend they've have uh philippe who won't be going to these uh pavia classics this year by the way so we'll see other riders step into that mold you know the big question is can they carry that domination into these big classics can they don't have terpster this year gavidia has gone so who is going to be the team leader who's going to emerge this year to really carry quick step through the pave you know steve r is looking sharp but you know, has he done well consistently in these races? You know, inconsistent is probably the right word. You know, Gilbert, still there, still hungry, and they still have some other options. So that's going to be the big story if they're kind of uh, throw the entire team into the mix and cover all these moves and put riders on the attack and take the race by the throat of the neck. That's going to be the big that's what was a story last year. We'll see if it's going to happen next this year. It's also a contract year for Philippe Gilbert. We know what that means. He likes to get crazy when it's a contract year. So that'll be exciting. I'm really excited to see what Peter Sagan can do. I, you know, it's, it's, we always talk about Sagan every single year. And of course he's the, the superstar of cycling three-time world champion. But, uh, I think, uh, I think he needs to add another monument to his Palmares this season to keep people satisfied with his level of performance. Cause I mean, he's just the superstar. He's got to get these big wins. 
Um, I have my eyes on the cyclocross duo because Wout van Aert will be at the Classics. He was sixth at Milan-San Remo. He was third at Strada Bianca, and he's going to be riding the heavy Classics. And Matthew Vanderpool is going to be there for Gent Welfelgum, and I believe Flanders as well. And we, oh, had a scary moment this past week at Nukara Course when Matthew Vanderpool caught up in a in a pileup and just tumbled like he was Neymar getting tripped in the World Cup, just fl- just tumbling around on the cobblestones. It looked really nasty. He had to be taken off in an ambulance. And then the message came down, no fractures. He is, you know, bruised and bumped, but he's going to be okay to race. And so to me, that's a huge storyline because it's like, wow, you know, what... You know, how, how strong will this guy be? How do the other riders react? Do they treat him like a Cancellara or do they treat him as a total wild card? Don't know what he's going to be capable of. Um, I'm really interested to see what uh, Vanderpool is able to do. Another big story to watch is going to be CCC team with Mr. Greg Van Avermaet. His lifelong, career-long quest to win Flanders. That's his big goal this year. I'm looking to see forward to seeing how that team handles the situation. I think Fred even said in the last podcast, you know, these guys were building the entire team around uh, Van Avermaet. But, you know, how deep is that team really? Are they even as strong as they were last year? I think they'll have a few surprises in them. Van Avermaet has been looking strong so far in the spring classics. But he hasn't really gotten that big win. He wants more than anything to win Flanders. Golden Greg. And Fred, I'm really glad you did bring up Wout Van Aert because let's just stop and recognize how crazy that is to go top 10 at Milan San Remo. It's a huge result. And yes, he's he's gotten some experience under his belt last year on the world tour level of road racing. But man, I didn't see that coming. I don't know about you guys, but that's a, that's a really great performance for, for someone whose background is primarily in cyclocross. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he has the wattage and the sort of diesel engine and well he has the he has the explosion to be able to go with the initial move and then the wattage to be able to follow it i don't yet know if he has the ability to like win yet i think he has the ability to make the final selection but that's going to be a big you know interesting storyline is does he have the ability to win one of these races i don't know some tells me it may take another couple years before he gets to that point i'll cut him some slack since this is his first year on a world tour team it's uh the sky's the limit i think and he's only 24 years old uh, some secondary stories, you know, I, Trek Segafredo, this is the team that has had a lot of pressure on it heading into the classics with Degen Kolb and Jasper Stuyven, these big Belgian, you know, big Belgian riders. And they just year after year have not really produced. I mean, it was such a great uh, sight to see Degen Kolb winning that Roubaix stage of the Tour de France. But at the actual classics, they've been a bit of a disappointment. And so, you know, this is the third year without Cancellara where the question is, you know, what can this team do it has this real pedigree in the cobblestones and so i don't know i got my eyes on them got my eyes on mr taylor finney i mean we saw that great ride from it roubaix last year eighth place would love to see him uh improve on that or just be in the mix in some of these races um no shortage of, of good stories to watch in the women's racing we, we're going to see annemiek van luten she's going to be racing the tour of flanders her big goal is the hilly ardennes races but she'll be at the tour of flanders and again we're going to see bulls dolmans try and battle it out against some really strong teams i have my eye on uh, the trek segafredo women's team they have um 
they have a pedigree in some of these races, even though they're a new team. They have have riders on their uh, roster, Ellen Van Dyke, who have done really well at these races. Uh, and then you can't, you know who you can't count out? Sunweb, the team of Corinne Rivera. Yeah. Just two years ago, she won Flanders, first American to ever win Flanders. Last year's been a disappointment. There's some sickness. I think we've all had our eyes on Corinne and what she can do at these races. That's right, Fred. And I gave Corinne a call uh, a couple weeks back to catch up with her and learn a little more about her plans for the classic season, how she deals with the pressure of being a Tour of Flanders winner and maybe having a year that wasn't so successful in 2018. Talking about a variety of these things, we caught up uh, sort of around the time, like right before Omloop, actually, and she was a little under the weather. She ended up not starting Omloop, and then she went on to to race Strada Bianca, which I, I don't think was a particularly standout race for her but if we look down the results at Trofeo Alfredo Binda she was right there in eighth place and that, that is a race that she won in the 2017 season when she won Tour of Flanders so I think that's a pretty good sign for Rivera that she's starting to hit that form that she needs going to the big classics and we'll be watching her as, a, as American cycling fans it's, it's great to have have a rider in the mix in these legendary races in Belgium all right let's hear from Corinne Okay, Corinne Rivera, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. We're talking to you from, uh, are you in Sittard right now? That is correct. I'm at the Sunweb Team House uh, in Sittard. All right. And unfortunately, you're a little under the weather. I am, it's true. Um, yeah, I just uh, finished up a stage race in Spain and uh, some traveling and changes in weather. So uh, catching up to me a little bit. But uh, yeah, staying uh, positive and making some smarter decisions and skipping uh, Omloop this weekend. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's actually, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how important Omloop is given that it isn't actually a women's world tour race. And I guess that's probably my answer is that it's not, it's not so important that you would race through sickness. Yeah, I think... Um it's always a you know the classic season opener uh, for the spring classics, of course, and uh, kind of the first benchmark um, at a at a Flanders classic. So um, it's always a, an interesting one, and also the courses change a little bit um, as well. But um, yeah, I mean, looking forward, there's a lot of bigger goals um, this spring, and uh, it doesn't make sense to start news blood at 98%, uh, only to dig myself further. Uh, into a hole. So I want to start the classics uh, at a hundred percent and, uh, be ready to go for it. Yeah. And I do, I do want to talk to you a little more about your, your goals and your plans for the classics. But, but before we get into that, do, do you have this sort of like deja vu feeling? Because I know last season, your spring classics, you had kind of a rough go because you were sick. Is this, uh, is this the sort of thing where you've learned from that and you know how to handle this, uh, setback that you're dealing with right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think every year, you know, you learn something. And uh, yeah, last year, I kind of, well, from last year, I learned that you kind of have to make a call. And um, so we made the call pretty early this year, uh, getting sick uh, before the spring classics. So yeah, definitely learning and um, being a little more conservative this year and uh, being smart with it because, uh, yeah, Newsbot isn't a huge goal. Um, so it's something that I can and miss and uh, not lose too much. Yeah. And of course, looking back 
2018, uh, you, you did have a have a you didn't have a great classic season results wise, but you did bounce back and win U.S. Nationals a little later in the in the season. What does it take mm-hmm. to bounce? What does it take to bounce back like that? I mean, how much of that do you have to kind of come to come to terms mentally with with what you need to do as a pro rider? Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, when I look back on like my first two years on a world tour team, my first year was like a really huge breakout, never really had any huge problems. And then last year, it's kind of a uh, year rising up to the expectation that I set myself the year before um, and kind of coping with, you know, how the media, you know, looks at you and how everyone expects you, you know, to do Um and uh, I kind of learned from from the two years and kind of putting them together this year and um, just really just focusing on the race itself and not really overthinking expectations and just thinking about the process and um, just going in, doing the best that I can do and um, not thinking about like, yeah, I want to get a top result here. So like, of course, with every race, I want to do the best that I can, but it also has to be a little bit realistic. Yeah. So um yeah, it's, it's kind of funny uh, looking back and thinking about how it's been. Um, but I think I'm coming into my, my third season um, smarter, wiser, and um, motivated. Well, uh, I wish we could all be that way all the time. <laughs> it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, man, you, it set, you set the bar so high by winning Flanders in, in your debut season with Sunweb. Uh, talk to me about that. Is that something... Does that overshadow things a little sometimes for you, or do you use it as uh, something you can draw on for inspiration? Um, maybe a little bit of both. I think, um, yeah, it, it set the bar really high, but I know that I've been there. So it's kind of a bit of both worlds. And, um, yeah, and I just have to know, like, there will be bad days. Not every race will be perfect. Um, and it's always possible to bounce back from it and just keep going and continuing and, you know, working on the next goal or whatever it is. And no two years will ever be the same. And that's something that I always said, uh, last year in a lot of interviews, but I think it's really true. I think I'm not going to be winning or losing the same races every year. So, uh, it's just a matter of resetting at every race and being realistic, uh, with what you can do and just making the most of each opportunity. Yeah. And so looking forward then, Talk to me about what what are your real key goals for this 2019 season, uh, probably sticking to the, the nearer term, at least uh, when it comes to you know, spring classics and that. Yeah, I think uh, the classics that really suit me are, you know, things like Binda and Gent Wevelgem and Flanders and kind of like the later spring classics. So really hoping to build uh, towards uh, the end of March and into April and uh, really focus on, on those kinds of races, um, a little bit hillier and punchier, um, and, uh, just kind of my style of racing. Mm-hmm. What would you say you have left to do in terms of that build? I mean, where are you at right now? How far do you have to go? Uh, I think, uh, we had a really good start. It was nice to start off the season, uh, in Spain with a stage race, um, be in nice weather, have multiple chances, uh, to race differently. Um, there was like a mountain day and three other, you know, pretty diverse kind of, um, sprint stages or they ended up being sprint stages. Um, so it was good to kind of, uh, not an easier start, but, um, it's not like a one day classic start where typically we would start at head news 
So it was good to start the season that way and kind of have that as a benchmark um, and have four days of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm feeling well. Um, you know, the form is really good and I, I am uh, building pretty, pretty well. And then just have a small little hiccup here uh, with a little bit of a cold. But I don't think it'll hold me back too much. Just mm. have to get uh, get healthy again and be ready for next weekend. Yeah. And looking back on that Spanish race, it's uh, the Setmana Ciclista Valenciana is uh, the full name. Correct. It's always yeah, a mouthful. Yes. I don't know why the Spanish races are always such long names, but. <laughs> <laughs> they just like to roll their R's or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah well, that's that's above my pay grade. Um, so two fifth places and a third place, which seem like really good results for starters. Uh, what did you get out of those results um, in terms of, what did it tell you about where you're at compared to your competition and, uh, and what's sort of the general state of the women's Peloton right now in terms of how competitive it is? Yeah, there was a lot of big teams, um, at Valencia this year. So it was really cool to see. Um, and I think it was also a good build for, I guess, the entire Peloton in general, um, and kind of a, a nice first matchup, uh, that isn't, under a lot of pressure. So, uh, yeah, the Peloton is really strong right now. Um, lots of good teams. Trek has uh, started off pretty well. And, uh, yeah, we were also had a, a pretty good uh, week with uh, three fifth places and a third place and all. So uh, I would say we had a really good start. Um, nice to kind of get the teamwork going and um, really setting the foundation for uh, the rest of the season. Yeah, and speaking of track, it uh, I, it was pretty exciting to see your former teammate, Ruth Winder, win that first stage, and she, of course, on the new track team. I mean, how did that feel to see her go up the road and take that win? I mean, she she's, uh, at least as far as I could tell, she's a really fun person to have around, and I, I got to think you miss her a little not having her on the team. Yeah, it was super cool to see her win, uh, even though we were chasing her down hard. And we got close to the break, but it, it was better that she won than somebody else, I guess. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm really stoked for her. It is sad to see her go, but, yeah, everyone at the end of the day has to do what's best for themselves. So I think Trek is uh, maybe a good fit for her, clearly. And, uh, yeah, she's doing well, I guess. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, of course, sad, but um, that's just how racing goes sometimes. Yeah, of course. And, and I do feel like Sunweb maybe lost a few pretty notable riders in the transfer for 2019. Talk to me about where your team's at right now and, and what do you view as your team's sort of strengths or, or the dynamics of the squad? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're still a good squad. Just because we lost some names doesn't mean uh, we're any less uh, good. And then, I mean, it's just on paper, maybe we're less good, but I think our, our teamwork and our cohesion and our, I think our ability to adjust to adversity is actually pretty well. And we had a lot happen uh, last week in Spain that we had to adjust on the fly. And I think we still did well considering the circumstances. So um, I'm pretty, pretty proud of all the work that we put in this winter. And uh, we really put it to the test at Valencia. And I think we'll be off to a good start in the spring classics. Uh, this weekend. Yeah, it will definitely be exciting to see that. And uh, I mean, for for sure, I'd love to I'd love to see you come into Flanders on 100% form, being as you know, it was really exciting to see you win back in 2017. Um, you know, one other race I, I think of as we look ahead 
pretty far in the distance of 2019 as uh, the world championships. It, it seems to me like the course uh, there in, in, um, in England is probably pretty favorable for a rider like you. Yeah, it should be a good one. Um, I haven't taken too close of a look uh, at it and uh, haven't reconned it at all or yet. Um, but I did race a tour of Yorkshire a couple years ago, so I kind of know um, how that road, the roads feel there and the asphalt. Like it's a really heavy kind of asphalt and um, a lot of uh, rolling hills and a bit of wind. So, yeah, definitely kind of my style of racing. And I think uh, it could be something that could suit me. And honestly, in general, the whole uh, U.S. team, I think uh, a lot of the, the top girls right now are really suited to that kind of racing. So I think in general, it, it's possible that we feel a really good squad there. Yeah, well, they'll be here before we know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, I appreciate your time. And um, yeah, best of luck. Hope you feel better. Cool. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks. Okay, guys. Well, like I said, uh, I am heading overseas soon. I will be reunited with Hoodie. It's always such a blast. We're going to be over there in Ghent. And our first big assignment is uh, E3 Bink Bank, Bink Bickety Bank. Bickety Bank? That's right. We, E3 Harlbecka. Do we have to call it Bink Bank? I guess so. Yeah. Uh, E3 Harlbecka, the race with the most problematic marketing oh, around. Uh, before we get out of here. That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we maybe we pick some winners for who's going to win this race. Uh, Hoodie, I see you studying the start list right now. Who's your pick for winning E3 Bink Bank? It's always such an interesting race. It's always kind of just a harbinger of what's coming down the road for the classics. It's like the mini tour of Flanders. You know, who's going to win? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, if you look at it just based on uh, results so far, you know, you have to go with the guy, you know, Steve or quick step. They're right there. They're the strong riders. Um, but, you know, is a guy like Terpstra, can he compete at that level with that new little pro Conti team he's on? Can a guy like, um, you know, some of these second-tier players really have a breakthrough performance? I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a hard race to call. The weather looks like it's going to be fairly good, you know, nothing, nothing too sloppy. So I think in that scenario, you got to go with someone from Quick Step. So I will say Stebar. Wow, Hoodie, really dragging direct energy, calling them a little pro-continental team. <laughs> Psh, direct energy, what a bunch of clowns. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Ligthard, who's that? Oh man, no, Terpstra is—he's not a bad pick. He's—he's—he's he's, he's been there before, but we'll see. I, my pick, I'm—I'm I'm gonna go with my heart on this one and say, Wow, Van Aert. I was just so stunned to see him win or to go top ten at San Remo. Excuse me. I think I think he's got a shot. This is a great race for him because it has some selective punchy cobblestones that'll just let him shine with his just raw strength and endurance. I bet he could win a sprint, too, if it came down to a small group, provided he's not up against some sort of crazy superstar when it comes to sprinting. Uh, you know, so I'm going to go in between both of you where, you know, my head says to choose uh, someone, a quick step rider, maybe a Eve Lampart, you know, not necessarily their marquee rider, but sort of the, uh, you know, the guy who is going to be launching the early attack. But I'm not going to go Eve Lampart. I'm going to go with my heart. And I'm going to say Oliver Nason. Oliver Nason, mm. second place at Milan San Remo. He's on great form right now. He's on Ajay Duzer Le Mondial. No, don't count them out as a classics team. They have Sylvain Dillier on that team. They have some strong guys. Uh, so Nason, 
I just, you know, I think he's on really good form. I think that uh, it's not Flanders so it, and not Roubaix, so there's the potential for you know, a little bit more casual racing. And he was fourth last year in this race, so he knows what it's like to be at the front end in the finale. Well... Oliver Nason. Should I should I take out a loan and go like bet it, you know, Patty Power or something like that on it? Maybe we should do a parlay bet. Those are fun. Yeah, where it's like Oliver, I don't know what it means, but I like saying it. Oliver Nason plus uh, something that happens in a cricket game. Yeah. And maybe a little prop bet on uh, one of the NCAA basketball games. Well, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellnews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine. Follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash News. Bell News Podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the podcast are those of the individual and as always it's the Brooklyn Boo Boo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums <laughs> <laughs>